Thank you for listening to Pastor Sean's Bible Study Teaching Podcast from Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. This lesson was recorded during our Wednesday night adult seminars. For more information on Emmanuel Baptist Church, please visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. Before we get to Revelation chapter 8, which is where we're going to be tonight, we are a third of the way through the book of Revelation. And so I want to remind you of where we've been, okay? So um, Revelation is one of those books that it would be very hard for me to preach on a Sunday morning. And the reason why is you've got about 40 minutes to give a message from the book of Revelation and you have different people coming in and out on a Sunday morning and it's just so, and there's different people coming in and out tonight. And so it builds, you can't just be gone and come back in. So let's just kind of go through where we've been up to this point. So let's just start back in chapter one and I'm just going to give overviews of just the big picture ticket items because I want us to kind of just I don't want us just to launch into Revelation 8 without getting a context of where we've been. So Revelation chapter 1, obviously John introduces himself. He's the one that's writing it. He received the revelation from Jesus. It's meant to be taken symbolically. And if you remember, Jesus sees the vision of the resurrected Christ in all of his glory and splendor. His face shone like the sun and all those different descriptions of, of who Jesus is. Then in chapters 2 and 3 we have the seven churches. And this is representative of seven types of churches that are, have been around for all time, but they were specific churches in Asia Minor. Um, I, I talked to somebody that was not here. I talked to somebody that I was at a conference with yesterday. So if that person, Scott, if you're listening, and he asked or other people are wondering, why did you skip over the seven churches? I didn't skip over the seven churches. I taught them last May. So I said, we're going to, I'm going to teach them last May. So if you missed the seven churches, you can go back onto iTunes under the, the EBC, the Emmanuel iTunes. You can go to the website or you can go to my Facebook page and have to go back in the archives. You can get the video and audio of the seven churches to give you more detail about that. Okay, so chapters two and three are the seven churches. That's a earthly scene of times of tribulation, times of sorrow, times of persecution, what we go through here on this earth, how the church is always going to be under attack with materialism, with sexual immorality, with false teaching, with persecution. Um, all those seven churches illustrate that. Then what Revelation does, one of its motifs is it switches from earthly scenes to heavenly scenes and back and forth. So chapter 4, we get transported to the heavenly throne room. And if you remember, all of chapter 4 was a description of God the Father on His throne and how He was glorious and unapproachable. And the question is, who can approach this God? You're left at the end of chapter 4 with this, this God is so glorious, He's so brilliant, He's so amazing, He's on His throne. Who dare approach Him? And the answer is nobody can approach Him unless you have a relationship with the Lamb, Jesus Christ. In chapter 5, we find out the identity of the lion slash lamb. If you remember, John hears that it's going to be a lion, turns around, it's a lamb, as though it was slain, and then the 24 living creatures and the four elders lead in heavenly worship where it's all praise and worship to Jesus as the, 
the sacrifice, the lamb that was sacrificed for our sins and to the Father in heaven. So chapters 4 and 5 are all that take place in heaven. Um, the heavenly scenes of worship, heavenly scenes of the throne room. And if you remember, the word throne shows up 40 times in the book of Revelation, representing God sovereignly on His throne, ruling and reigning. Okay, we get to chapter 6, and we come back down from heaven to earth. And you've got the beginning of judgment, and you've got the seven seals. Because remember, Jesus comes and takes the seal, the scroll, and opens the, the scroll that has the seals. And you've got the four riders of the apocalypse, the four horsemen of the apocalypse. You've got the souls martyred in heaven. You've got the great earthquake. Um, if you get to the end of chapter 6, the sun turns to black. The stars become like, um, the moon becomes like blood. The stars fall from the sky. There's a great earthquake. Everybody's running for their lives. And the question is, who can stand the great day of final judgment? That's how chapter 6 ends. Who can stand that day? Chapter 7, what we looked at last week is, okay, here's an interlude. We've got, we've got the sealed judgments. We've got the sealed judgments. One through how many? One through six. Now, how many of them are there? Seven. So we haven't gotten to the seventh one yet. So you got one through six, and then you've got what's this, like an interlude or intermission or a break, a pause. And chapter seven is all to tell us who can stand on the day of judgment. And we looked at that in great detail last week that the 144,000 and the great multitude are the same group of people. That was my interpretation. The, the short answer is only those who are believers in Jesus Christ will be able to stand on that final day. And then chapter 7 ends with a picture of heaven, doesn't it? Remember last week it talks about Jesus was going to be their shepherd. They're going to be before the throne serving the Lord day and night. God will wipe away every tear from their eye. It seems like Revelation should end right there, shouldn't it? You got final judgment. You got heaven. Okay, but, but if you look at the book of Revelation, how many more chapters do you have till the end? You got a lot more ways to go. So the question then becomes, okay, why doesn't it just end right there? Well, we've seen final judgment, and we've seen the redeemed in heaven, but it's not over just yet. We come to Revelations, Revelation chapters 8 and 9, which are going to go to a different set of judgments. We're no longer looking at the sealed judgments now. We're going to be looking at the seven trumpet judgments. Now remember, have we seen the sixth sealed judgment yet? I mean the seventh sealed judgment yet. Have we seen that? No. Okay. Now, just to let you know, in the book of Revelation, there are three sets of judgments. There's seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls. And I ask the question, are these linear, are these sequential, are these to be taken one after another, like there's 21 judgments? Or are they telling the same thing from a different camera angle, from a different perspective? Um, I think it's more of the different camera angle than it is sequential. And so, just like we saw in the sixth and seventh seals, with that interlude, 
we're going to see an interruption between the sixth and seventh trumpet jump, ju trumpet judgments with an interlude in chapters 10 and 11. So why seven separate judgments times three? Okay, so talk about numbers in Revelation. What's the number three represent? The Trinity, God, God's power. What's the number seven represent? Completeness, okay? So we have seven separate judgments and three versions of them, seals, trumpets, bowls, and they're related to one another. Are they linear? Are they sequential? Are they happening now? Will they happen in the future? What are we to make of these three separate judgments? So you've got seal judgment, trumpet judgment, and bowl judgment. Bowl. How do you spell? I almost spelled bowel. That's like a really good a bowel judgment. That would be pretty interesting. A bowl judgment. Okay. So you got seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls. So one, two, three. The question is, okay, is it sequential? So like one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. We're done. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. We're done. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Then we're finally done. Is it like 21 different judgments, one after another, or are these kind of looking at the same thing but from a different angle? So let me give you an example. When you go, if you've ever gone to Denver and you've gone to the art museum, I don't know if you've ever, you've ever gone to a museum or you've gone to the Louvre or someplace like that, and you looked at a painting. When you look at a painting, like a famous painting, what, what's the first thing you do when you look at a painting? You look at the overall painting, right? You kind of look at it. Okay, that's Mona Lisa, or that's something, Starry Night. So you get the big picture, right? You know what it is. But then if you have time, what do you do? You get a little bit closer, and you look at the detail, and you look at the brush strokes, and you look at the colors, and you look at the small details. Now, and then you step back and look at it again. Has the painting changed when you looked at the big picture versus the details? Same painting, right? What are you doing? One is a, I'm getting the big picture. One is, I'm getting the details. Okay? What's the big picture? God's going to send judgment. What are the details? Well, they're unfolding in these seven different trumpet, bowl, seal judgments that I think are all kind of the same thing told from a different perspective. And so the reason I think there's three of them is to help us see in a little bit more detail how God operates. But you step back, and the, and the big picture is God sending judgment on the earth. All right, so maybe you're not into painting. Maybe you like music. So when you go listen to music, like at a concert or you go to a symphony and you listen to a musical score, what are you going to hear repeated throughout a musical score? Same type of theme, probably. You're going to have ups and downs and crescendos and slow points. But there's going to be, like, you're going to walk away from a concert, and what are you going to remember? The overall experience, right? Now, you're going to enjoy each individual song, right? But you're going to walk away enjoying the big experience. Same concert, right? What's the difference? You're enjoying each individual song, but you're also enjoying the big thing. That's my best way to explain why there's three different major judgments. No matter how you look at them, whether you look at them as sequential, which you can, 
I think it's a hard case to make that they're sequential, and we'll look at that tonight. I think that they're cyclical, but here's the overall point. We can lose the forest for the trees. The major theme of all three of these judgments is that God is sovereignly pouring out His wrath on unbelieving humanity who persist in their unrepentance and refusal to trust in Jesus. The details of these three judgments enhance the overall theme until it reaches a crescendo at the very end. Now, you guys, as we read this, how much of the earth is destroyed in the seal judgment? One-fourth. How much is destroyed in the trumpet judgments? One-third. How many in the bowl judgments? hundred percent. Now, like one-third, one-fourth, one one-third, what, what, what are we missing here? What percentage are we missing? You're missing half. In the middle of these, there's some thunder judgments where half the earth is destroyed as well. So there's similarities, there are differences. We just have to think about this. What's the answer? Why are there three different sets of judgments? I may not be sure of a lot of things in Revelation, but here's one thing I'm sure of, okay? While we may be alive during these calamities and experience the physical suffering involved, as Christians, since we are sealed, we will be protected spiritually through these as God's children, and He will cause us to endure to the end. So let me ask you a question, and we'll get to this on Sunday mornings in a few weeks but I'll give you a preview. When God poured out His plagues on Egypt, where was Israel living? In Egypt. Did God take them out? No, but where were they in Egypt? They were in the land of Goshen, and all of Egypt got affected by the plagues, but they were protected in Goshen and didn't have to go through them except for the last plague, which was what? The Passover. Okay. So while God did not remove Israel from the plagues that He poured out on Egypt, He protected them through them. That's an Old Testament picture. If Revelation is the second Exodus, and then again, this is my interpretation, you can take it or leave it, depending on how you view this. If we are alive during these times, of major tribulation, the one thing God will protect us from is nobody can take our salvation. We may be persecuted. We may like lose a job. We may go hungry. I pray that doesn't happen, but it may. But the one thing they can't take away from you, and I keep telling you this every week, the one thing they can't take away from you is your salvation. So you will be spiritually protected. So, Revelation can be seen as the second exodus. Did I not bring water in here or did I? I must have left it in my office or somewhere. What happened to my water? I know I did something with it. It's what? Hmm. Reese, do you have keys to Doug's office? I'm sorry. Could you go into Doug's office and get me a bottle? That's where I steal, I steal his water. That's where he keeps water for us. Thanks, Risa. So, all right, so Revelation can be seen as the second exodus. What was the exodus 
Okay, so what was the Exodus? You guys tell me. Been in it on Sunday mornings for six weeks now. What was the Exodus? Okay, the Israelites are in slavery in Egypt, and God says to Moses, Go confront Pharaoh, let my people go. And Moses goes down there and sings the Pharaoh, Pharaoh, oh, let my people go. Yeah, 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 yeah. You guys remember that song back when you were kids? I'm not sure that Moses said that. Because actually, we'll find out this Sunday, Moses says, Lord, please send somebody else, because I don't want to do that. And God got angry with him. But why is... There's another exodus in the Scriptures besides Revelation and besides Exodus. There's another exodus in the Old Testament. Babylon. God's people were in subjugation in Babylon for how many years? Seventy years of exile. And why were they there? Rebellion, idolatry, and then under Ezra and Nehemiah, they were able to return. So they came out of Babylon, they exited Babylon, and they came back to the Promised Land, and that's when they rebuilt the temple and they rebuilt the wall when they got back. So there's two pictures of coming out of something back to something. Exodus, you come out of slavery into the promised land. Thanks, Risa. Appreciate it. The, the exile, you come out of Babylon and you come back to Jerusalem. Okay, the question then is, okay, what is Revelation have to do with the book of Exodus and the exile from Babylon? Let's just think about it right now. Let's, this is not in your notes, but let's just kind of make some comparisons. Because... Whether we're living in Egypt or whether we're living in Babylon, what are some similarities between Egypt and Babylon? What type of place, what type of place was Egypt? Place of slavery, right? It was also a place of paganism. No honoring of God. There's paganism. There's, there's all these Egyptian gods. Okay. Now, Babylon, it's sort of slavery, not as much harsh taskmasters, but they got carted out of Jerusalem. Jerusalem got burned down, and they were sent for 70 years to basically live as subjects under the king. And they were also in paganism. They were also in a foreign land. So let me ask you a question. Right now, as believers in Jesus Christ, are we, in a sense, metaphorically living in Babylon and not necessarily Egypt, but maybe Babylon? Yeah. Okay. So God rescued us out of Egypt in the sense that we were saved. This, so, so Egypt is a picture of salvation. We're saved out of slavery through the blood of a Passover lamb, Jesus, and we're given eternal life. But in a sense, guys, is the world we're living in right now Babylon or is it Jerusalem? Does the world we live in agree with the Bible? Does the world we live in have a Judeo-Christian worldview? Not at all. So we are foreigners in a strange land. We are living in Babylon right now. And as we live in Babylon, metaphorically, what are we going to face? We're going to face persecution. We're going to face trials. We're going to face 
temptations. We're going to face weird stuff coming at us from the culture. But eventually, are we going to get out of Babylon? God's going to what? Bring us back the way he did the Israelites. Now, in the Exodus, it was to get to the promised land. They got kicked out of the promised land and went to Babylon. They came back to the promised land. For us, what's our promised land? Heaven. Okay. So, right now, we are spiritually protected in the sense that God has saved us by grace through the blood of the Lamb. It does not mean that we won't experience trials and tribulations and hardships in this world. But God will promise to eventually get us home. So, how He does that, when He does that, the details about that, we could sit here and argue all night. What's the one thing I know? We're living in a pagan culture. We're not to heaven yet, but God's going to get us there. Well, isn't, can't you say that one of those details is, is the rapture? Depend on how you define the rapture. And I know it's not in Revelation. Paul talks about it, so... A, a catching up? Yeah, and so like what I said a couple weeks ago, and you, and you guys can disagree with me, that I believe the second coming and the catching up is a, a simultaneous one-time event. So either way, there's a pre-trib rapture, there's a post-trib resurrection. Here's, what I've, here's my best guess. You pray for pre-trib, but you prepare for post. Does that make sense? I personally don't hold to a pre-trib rapture, but a lot of people do. Um, it's just a matter of interpretation. Again, it's not a dogma. It's not a, it's not a hill to die on. Um, I guess the one thing that I know is that regardless of how the details work out, can you ever lose your salvation? Can anybody take away your salvation? Are you spiritually protected? Yes. Okay. Now, are you guys ready to get to Revelation now? All right, so, chapter 8. So remember, seals 1 through 6, we've already seen there's an interlude in chapter 7. We've got to get back to the seventh seal. So in chapters, chapter 8, verses 1 through 5, we see the seventh seal. And um, I won't tell you the joke. Well, I will tell you a joke. This was a joke we heard when I had when I was in college. A proof that there's no women in heaven. Verse 1, when the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about a half an hour. But um, <laughs> that was a joke we told in college just to try to get a, try to get a rise out of our, our female friends. And I had a friend, and he created a group called Bachelor, Bachelors Till the Rapture. That was the group he had. And, like, he got, he got T-shirts and everything, like Bachelors Till the Rapture. So he was like, and so he got mad when we started getting married. Like, on my, on my bachelor party, he kidnapped me and put a ball and chain on me. And we went to all these different places where I had to, like, go around Colorado Springs with a ball and chain on. And they put a Bachelor to the Rapture t-shirt on me. And then, and then he finally got married. And it was like, he's like, I'm never going to get married. And I'm not going to get married to the Rapture. I'm going to be a Bachelor to the Rapture. And so he used to say that, go around to, he was trying to be a Bachelor to the Rapture. He'd go around and tell Girls, you know there's not going to be any females in heaven because of Revelation 8.1. And so that was, anyway, that's a side note. So let's get to Revelation 8.1. <laughs> yeah, when, yeah, depends on the man. 
Um, some, some men talk more than women. All right, well, so when the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about a half an hour. Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Okay. What should stand out to you, jokes aside, is that there's silence in heaven for about a half an hour. What have we seen so far in this point in Revelation? Let's just go back. Chapter 1, verse 10. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. Verse 15. His voice was like the roar of many waters. Chapter 4, verse 5. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. Chapter 4, verse 8. The four living creatures, each of them with six wings and full of eyes around and within, and day and night, they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Chapter 5, verse 9. They sang a new song, and there's the song. Chapter 7, verses 2 and 3. Uh, four angels been given to power. They're, they're, they're calling out to the, do not harm the sea. Uh, chapter 7, verse 10. They're crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our Lord. Up to this point, what's there been in Revelation? A lot of noise, okay? <laughs> Trumpets, water, singing, shouting, thunder. But now what do we have? Silence. Now why is there silence? You guys know this intuitively. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a device of suspense. For example, if I'm preaching on a Sunday morning and I'm getting all rant, I'm ranting and raving and getting into it, and I stop and I'm quiet for like a few seconds, what are you waiting to hear? What's he going to say next? It's a rhetorical device to get your attention that something big is about to happen. This is also a picture of what happens in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, right before God's about to pour out His judgment, there is. Silence in heaven. Not in heaven, but there's silence. So Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 20. The Lord is in His holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before Him. Zephaniah 1, 7. Be silent before the Lord, for the day of the Lord is near. Zechariah 2, 13. Be silent, all flesh, before the Lord for he has roused himself from his holy dwelling. Let me tell you what one commentator says. This silence is the calm before the storm. For God's enemies on earth, it is a silence of dread. But for those who dwell in heaven, it's the silence of eager expectation. What does silence do for you sometimes? It can make you uncomfortable or it can calm you. For the Christian, what does silence do in heaven? We can't wait to see what God's going to do. For those that don't have Christ that are on the earth, what's the silence in heaven going to do? 
I can't, I don't want to know what God's going to do. Okay. So we've got trumpets now. The seven angels stand before God. They have seven trumpets. So we're kind of in between, okay, like the seventh seal is silence in heaven, and it kind of leads to the trumpet judgments. It's kind of, it's kind of overlapping there. But what's the significance of trumpets? Well, again, it goes back to the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, trumpets were often used to sound the battle cry or to celebrate the special feast or to call people together for an assembly. So if they're going to go out to battle, what do they do? They blew the, the shofar, the trumpet. If they're going to celebrate a special feast, what do they do? Blow the trumpet. If they're going to call everybody to an assembly, it's like the bell. Okay, like at my old church, we used to have a bell. So if Sunday school went over, you rang the bell, let everybody know that they were going over so they could get to worship. So we actually had a bell that we'd ring, and it went through all, the whole building to let people know, okay, you got to come, got to come to church now. So what did they do in the old days? They rang the, the bell. Okay, so they blew a trumpet. Now, look at, the, look at this very carefully. This, this should bring back memories of the Old Testament. How many trumpets do they have? Seven trumpets. So let me ask you a question. What's the most famous story in the Old Testament with seven trumpets? Joshua at the battle of Jericho. So Joshua and the battle of Jericho in Joshua 6, what, what happened there? You had seven priests, not seven angels, seven priests. They were given seven trumpets. They marched around the city. And on the seventh day, they would blow the trumpet seven times. And what happens? The wall came down. Jericho in the Old Testament is a symbol of what? God's judgment on His enemies through blowing of a trumpet. Do you guys know why Jericho was so strategic? What did God tell the nation of Israel to do when they got into the Promised Land? Jericho was a fortified city that prevented them. Well, it was the first city they had to deal with. Jericho was a barrier for them to get into the promised land. Okay? So Jericho had to fall before what? They can get the promised land. Babylon the Great must fall before God's people can get their permanent home in heaven. In other words, it's a symbol that God's about to go to war with His enemies. It's not God calling everybody to a festival. It's not God calling everybody to a symbol. It's this is a trumpet of war. The walls are going to come tumbling down. Not Jericho, but Babylon, symbolic of this, this, this world system. So the seventh seal, remember, we're talking about the seventh seal we haven't gotten to it yet because there was an interlude in chapter 7. Chapter 8 picks up on the seventh seal. It actually is like a hinge on a door, like a hinge. So one side of the door, the seventh seal. The other side of the door, the trumpet judgment. So it kind of swings us into the seven trumpet judgments. And they're connected somehow. But the actual seventh seal is when the angel takes the censer with fire and throws it on the earth where there is again an earthquake. Question. Didn't we already see an earthquake back in chapter 6? Yes. Is this another earthquake? I don't know. It could be showing us the same events from a different vantage point. 
The bottom line is that the seventh seal judgment begins or is connected with the seven trumpet judgments. Now, at this point, I want to give you an alternative viewpoint because I want to be fair, okay? Because I've been giving you a viewpoint that's not the popular viewpoint. So if you've read the Left Behind books or you go into a Christian bookstore or you listen to any televangelist, they're going to give you the popular view. I don't hold to the popular view. Uh, the popular view has only been around for maybe 120 years in church history. Um, it's, not, it's, it's only been really popular among Baptists, Southern Baptists, within the past 30 years. So I want to give you what it's called, and I want to explain it to you um, just so you know what it is. Okay? So there's another way to understand the book of Revelation, and it's called the dispensational view. You guys ever heard of that term, dispensational? Premillennial dispensationalism. Okay, that, that's, that's, the, that's the official name for the view. It's what I call the popular view, just because it's, it's, it's the most popular among um, most... Um, I have a chart somewhere in my office, not in my office, but I, I have a listing of who all holds to what views, like what, what scholars throughout church history hold to the different views. So you can look and see. You know who's the most confusing? You never know what, which view he holds to. That old Charles Spurgeon. <laughs> you never know which one. He wasn't, he, he wasn't very clear on which view he held to. Um, let me tell you what the dispensational view is just so you know it, and you may hold... Remember what I said a few weeks ago? So let, let's just review, because you may not have been here a few weeks ago. And I'm, I know I keep doing a lot of review, but I think we need to, to do this, just because we have new people watching on Facebook Live, we have new people here tonight, other people listening on podcasts all over the world. And so we make a bullseye here. So we've got dogma, doctrines, and preferences. Remember? So dogma are those absolute essential beliefs that you have to believe in order to be a Christian. So these are the, the dogma are the non-negotiables. So like the Trinity, the virgin birth, the resurrection, Jesus is the only way, Jesus being the, you know, God in the flesh, um, salvation by grace, the authority of the Bible, the reality of heaven and hell, um, a literal second coming, all the things that we would say, if, if you get outside of dogma, you, you're, you're either a cult or a heretic or you're, you're not a true You don't hold to orthodox Christian beliefs, okay? Doctrines, on the other hand, are secondary beliefs or different ways of interpreting the Scripture where we can agree to disagree. So, for example, we talk about mode of baptism. Do you sprinkle or do you dunk? Do you speak in tongues? Do you not? Do you have women pastors? Do you not? Do you believe you can lose your salvation? Do you not? Do you have a more sovereign view of election or do you have a more free will view of election? Different ways of understanding secondary doctrines. What I would put in here is in times views are in that second category. The problem I have is not so much that you believe what you believe. Remember I said you, you, you can believe what you believe. Make sure if you believe what you believe, you give me reasons why you believe what you believe. I may disagree with you, but you need to give me your reasons. That's perfectly fair. What I don't like to see happen, and I need to caution you on this, is to make your particular end times view a dogma. Because what you're saying at that point is, if you don't agree with me on my end times view, I'm basically saying to you, you're not a Christian. Or we're not going to be in heaven together. 
So you've elevated your end times view to a place that I don't think the Bible gives it. Because, as I said a few weeks ago, I've studied the end times since I was in high school, which is going on, what, 1990? So what, 28 years? Well, even earlier than that, when I, like, so let's say 30 years I've been studying this. There is not one view out of the four major views that I think is foolproof, where you can sit there and say, yeah, this, this, this is airtight. There's holes in all of them. So anybody that comes to you and says, this is absolutely dogmatically how it has to be, and if you don't agree with my view, you are wrong, you need to be cautious of that. Now, that doesn't mean because it's a doctrine, you can't say, this is my view, I'm very strong about it, this is what I believe, here's why, and here's my reasons. And I will say, bless you. I disagree with you, but bless you. And you should say to me, I disagree with you, but bless you. Can we agree on the dogma? Yes. So what I'm sharing with you is the dispensational view. It, it comes into a doctrine. Now, I don't, I don't, the view I'm about to share with you, I don't personally hold to. A lot of people do. But the one danger with this popular view is that those that hold to it, if you have any other view besides this view, they tend to look at you suspiciously and say, you're not quite right. You understand what I'm saying? So the dispensational view, and I'm not trying to cast stones, the dispensational view is more susceptible, not always, but more susceptible to elevate their end times view to almost like it's the borderline. Like they wouldn't say it's dogma, but man, it's coming really close. It's like right there on the border. And like for me, I've got, a I've got, a, I've got, a, I've got one that's right there on the border, but I won't tell you what it is. I'll probably tell you what it is. You want to know what it is? <laughs> Why would I do that and say, I'm not going to tell you what it is? For me, eternal security is like right there on the border. Like I wouldn't say if you believe you lose your salvation that you're not going to heaven. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I wouldn't put eternal security as a dogma, but I'd put it like really close to the edge because I think there's too much evidence in the Bible for it. Uh, but again, I won't go that far and say, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't tell my Arminian and Nazarene friends and Assembly of God friends that they're, they're not believers because they believe you can lose your salvation. So I, I wouldn't go that far. I just say for me, there's, there's those ones that get really close. And you have to be careful because you can make a doctrine into a dogma and then you become dogmatic. And you can become very legalistic and very arrogant in what you believe. Uh, Brent. I was going to say that the men that you meet with every week. Yeah. Well, some of them oh, yeah. Yeah, I can tell you, yeah, I mean, the, the guy, and we prayed today, the guys that I meet with every week, a few of them speak in tongues, a few of them believe you can lose your salvation, a few of them believe in women pastors, and a few of them have different views that I have. But we all hold to the dogma, and that's why we're unified. Now, we have some, sometimes have some strong discussions about our differences, and that's okay. That's why I'm not Assembly of God or Nazarene or Foursquare. I'm Baptist because of the convictions that I have. That's why they're what they are. And I'm not going to make them change. So you should not make somebody change what their convictions are on a doctrine because that's, the, that's, that, that's a conviction they have. So here's the thing. I'm, I know I'm going on a tangent on here, but I need to be real careful. We need, and I'm starting to preach, so let me just stop real quick. Uh, we need to be very careful that we don't bind another believer's conscience on a secondary matter. Now, what do I mean by that? When you bind another believer's conscience, what you're saying is you have to believe the same exact way I do on a secondary matter. And if you don't, you're in sin. Or I can say to them, if you don't believe exactly the same way I believe, you're in sin. I'm binding their conscience to something. It's my conviction. 
But do I need to put that conviction upon them? Especially if they don't have that conviction. Now, on a dogma, can I do that? You bet. I can go to somebody that doesn't believe Jesus is the only way and say, listen, it's not a matter of your conviction. It's not a matter of your conscience. This is an absolute truth that we've got to agree upon. You see the difference between a dogma and a doctrine? You can, you can, I think you can bind people's consciences on dogma because there's no real conscience there. It's absolute truth. On some secondary doctrines, when you have strong convictions, I think we need to be real careful. So with that as a preview, I don't want to bind your conscience to hold to my view of the end times, and I would respect that you would not bind my conscience to have the same view of the end times. What I'm saying is, can we agree to disagree? Can we agree, or can we, what is it, can we disagree agreeably? Which is a good thing, because what do you see in our culture today? Are people disagreeing agreeably? It's a lost art. Just look at Twitter. Or don't look at Twitter. <laughs> you cannot have a rational conversation on Twitter with anybody, especially about deep things like this. Back in the day, I remember back in the day when you actually, when you had an issue with somebody, you sat down face to face and talked with them. You didn't hide behind a keyboard and, and, and hide behind your, 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 your keyboard strokes and lash out at somebody. What do we see happening today? I'm just going to lash out at somebody on Twitter or Facebook or whatever. And the Christian thing to do is to say, listen, this is such an important thing. Let's sit down and talk about it. And we may vehemently disagree on some issues, but I want to sit and listen to you, and I want you to listen to me, and I want to love you through it, and I want to respect you through it, and I respect you enough to let you be wrong. Let me say that differently. I respect you enough that I want you to be able to voice your opinion without me jumping down your throat. In our culture today, are you even allowed to have an opinion? If you have an opinion that's different than the culture, you're not even allowed to have that opinion. So I know I'm kind of preaching here. That's okay because we need to hear this maybe tonight. There is the intolerance of tolerance. Now, what do I mean by that? What do you hear from people? Let's be tolerant of all beliefs. Let's just be tolerant. Well, that's all fine and good until your belief is not what the culture says is true. Then they're intolerant of you. So let me give an example. Let's be tolerant. You know, you, need, you just need to, you know, let's be tolerant of all groups. Okay? So I believe Jesus is the only way of salvation. Oh, you can't believe that. That's bigoted. That's narrow-minded. But that's what I believe. No, you can't believe that. Now, who's being intolerant? The person saying, I can't even believe that. Now, in the past, tolerance would say, you have the right to believe that even though I disagree because we're in a free country. You may be totally whack and totally off your rocker and totally wrong, but you have the right to believe that, and I give you that right. Nowadays, it's you don't even have the right to believe that, and if you do believe that, you better keep it to yourself, and if you do believe that, we're going to make you believe the opposite because we're going to force you to believe that. That's where we're at right now. And if we're not careful, Christians can start playing the game that the culture does and treat each other that way on secondary issues. We need to be real careful. Okay, so I'm done preaching. Let's talk about dispensationalism. Unless there's any questions or comments or snide remarks on that. All right, so the dispensational view of Revelation up to this point. Uh, chapters 1 through 3, they look at that as the church age of what's happening now. So the church age is going through a time of persecution, time of tribulation. Um, the seven churches are representative of the church age. Um, and then 
when you get to chapter 4, they see a shift. Now, there's a natural shift. What did I say was the shift? Earthly scenes versus heavenly scenes. So when they look at chapter 4 and say that John was taken up to heaven, they see that as symbolic for the rapture of the church. And what they'll say is the word church does not show up in the rest of the book of Revelation. So therefore, the church has been raptured out of the earth, and the rest of the book of Revelation is the Great Tribulation. Now here's the interesting thing about that interpretation. When John is caught up into heaven, is there anything in that passage of Scripture to lend you to believe that this is the rapture of the church? That's the way they take it. And that's fine if they want to see it that way. I don't see it that way, but they see it that way. So when you get to chapter 4 through chapter 22, everything that we're reading about in the rest of the book of Revelation are all events that happen after the rapture of the church, the church is out of the way, and everything in the rest of the book of Revelation is happening during a literal seven-year tribulation. So let me ask you the question again. Did we ever see the number seven in this as far as a tribulation and a number? Okay. The 144,000 is a literal number of converted ethnic Jews during the tribulation who bear witness to Christ. Now remember last week we went over this. I don't believe the 144,000 is literal Jews. I believe it's a symbolic number of both Old and New Testament believers. The great multitude is the same group of people just told from a different vantage point. But the dispensationalist view says... The great multitude in heaven are those Christians martyred who died during the seven-year tribulation. Now, again, last week, these are those who came out of the great tribulation. Do we find anything there about a seven-year period or not? They also see the seals, the trumpets, the bowls as linear and sequential, and these will only happen in the future during a seven-year tribulation when the church has been raptured out of the world. In other words, here's what the dispensational view says. This is not in your notes, but I will give you the chief, the chief operating fundamental assertion of the dispensational view. So let me write this up here so you know titles, names. Dispensational or otherwise known as pop, the popular view. I guess my view is not very popular then, but that's okay. Um, God has two plans. Plan A was for the Jews. So when Jesus came to earth, he offered the kingdom to the Jewish people. They did not receive Jesus as their Messiah. They rejected Jesus. And so if they would have accepted Jesus as their Messiah, he would not have been crucified and they would have set up the millennium right there with Jesus ruling and reigning from Jerusalem. But since the Jews did not accept Jesus, God set the Jews aside for a period of time, and he went to plan B. Plan B is the Gentile church. So the Gentile church is what we're living in right now. God's kind of set the Jews aside. Some Jews here and there will get saved, but for the most part, the church is really a parenthesis in God's plan because he really wants to get back to the Jews. So the rapture is a way 
to get the church out of the way so that God can go back and deal with the Jews. So the church is raptured out pre-tribulation. Then there's the seven-year period. And during the seven-year period of tribulation, God goes back and deals with the Jews, and there's a mass conversion of Jews during the Great Tribulation. So dispensationalism operates under a, there's two plans. There's God has a plan for the Jews, God has a plan for the Gentiles. I interpret the scriptures as God has one plan from Genesis to Revelation that involves his people regardless of what ethnicity they are. And that, yes, the church started through the Jews. Yes, the Jews are the olive tree and Gentiles have been grafted in. But Ephesians chapter 2 says Christ has broken down the dividing wall of hostility and has made us one people. Um, so there's just a different understanding of how God operates. So that's, that's more the dispensational understanding of the book of Revelation. And if you hold to that, that's perfectly fine. There's a lot of people that do. I just want you to know I don't. And if you do, you need to understand why you do and why I don't. And that's cool. Risa. We go up to heaven during the rapture. So we still are saved. Yeah, we're saved. We're saved by grace through Jesus. Right. Yeah, we're still saved by grace through Jesus, but we're raptured out of the earth. The, the church, right. predominantly made up of Gentiles. And so then the seven-year tribulation happens, and it's during that seven-year tribulation that God goes back and starts dealing with the Jews. And 144 are going to be converted during that time literal 144, and they're going to bear witness to other Gentiles who will also come to faith. And then when Christ comes back the third time, when he came back during the rapture secretly, when he comes back the third time, he's going to set up his thousand-year reign and literally reign on the earth with, and there's going to be a rebuilt temple, and they're going to redo the sacrificial system and all that kind of stuff. Yes? Depends on who you talk to as far as dispensationalists differ in their view of how this, this, they understand this, but their, their basically understanding is if the Jews in Jesus' time would have accepted him, the kingdom would have been ushered in right then. He would have established his kingdom and his rule and his reign right there. Now, they would argue that God knew that wasn't going to happen, and so, um, but, but hypothetically that could have happened because... If, if that's true, then what's the purpose of the cross? If, if he, Christ would have established his kingdom right there, he wouldn't need to die. Now, they may say, yes, the way he established his kingdom was dying, but who's the one, who, 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 who put Jesus to death? The, Jew, the Jewish leaders. So, so there's, you really can't... See, dispensationalism has morphed over the years. It really came about... I'll give you a little history here. In about the 1840s, there was a guy named John Nelson Darby, Plymouth Brethren. John Nelson Darby was the first one to really come up with this idea. It wasn't around in church history up until about the 1840s. It really got popular in the early 1900s with the Schofield Reference Bible. 
So if you have the Schofield Reference Bible and like the, the King James Schofield Reference Bible, 1900, early 1900s, that really made it popular. Then what really, really made it popular was in the mid-70s, you had um, the late great planet Earth with, um, what's his name, Pal Lindsay popularized it. And then you, got, you had guys like Jack Vanapee on TV, Jack and Rexella. Bless his heart, I love Jack. And I mean, Rexella's, if you ever watch Jack, oh, Jack, I, you know, Jack. She's like the sidekick wife with the blonde hair. Anyway, um, so you got Jack Vanapee made it popular. Then in the 90s, you had what? The Left Behind books. Um, and so let me just tell you this. I will tell you this in all my travels. If you're over 50, you care a lot about end times. If you're under 50, you could care less. And that's a generalization. But I've talked to a lot of people, and it seems like the old, those that are older than me are really hung up in end time stuff. The millennials and those that are younger than me, they're interested in it, but they're asking different questions. They're more into social justice. They're more into issues of predestination and election. They're more interested in race relations and how does, you know, they're not thinking about in times the way a future generation did. So what I'm trying to say is even though this is kind of came about from the 1840s, from 1840s to 2018, it's kind of morphed. There's, there's been different schools. You've got Moody Bible College is a dispensational school. Dallas Theological Seminary is a dispensational school. You've got John MacArthur, who's more of a modified dispensationalist. Um, you got the King James only dispensationalist. So you got all different stripes. So it, it just depends on who you talk to as far as what the ultimate interpretation is of that. Yes, Jerry. Um, was the New Age part of that in the 1900s? The New Age? Like the New Age movement? Yeah. Uh, that, that, was, that probably took more root in the 70s and 80s. 60s, 70s, and 80s. The New Age movement. Of like Eastern mysticism and things like that? I never heard of that in the... Yeah, like, Your son? You said your son. They were trying to get your son into it. Yeah. That that wouldn't have been in the early 1900s, Jerry. Yeah. In the, he was, he was like 1902. You mean the early 90s? Yeah. Okay. When you say early 1900s, I think like 1902 yeah. or 1903. <laughs> I'm like, you're not that old, Jerry. <laughs> I'm 118. <laughs> Sometimes I feel that old. Yeah, yeah, oh yeah, 1990s was, yeah, there was a lot of new age, kind of more started in like the late 60s, really blossomed in the 80s, and yeah, so, yeah, all right. Now, here's my only issues with this interpretation, and we may not finish tonight, but that's okay. Okay, my only, so I'm not, I'm not trying to say this view is wrong if you hold to it. What I want to do is give you three things to think about. Does the text tell us anywhere so far the church has been raptured out of the world? Is there a specific teaching that teaches that? For those who want to take things very literally, what have they done with John being transported up to heaven? What have they made that into? That's symbolically the church being raptured. So they've actually made a symbolic interpretation of that. Now, that could be true. John going up to heaven could be symbolic of the rapture, but there's nowhere really in that that says... John. Now, John is like the church, and he's being raptured up there. 
they're making a symbolic leap that may not be there. Okay, other question. Just because the word church, specifically, doesn't show up in the rest of the book doesn't mean that Christians and the church are not there. What are, we see a lot of different names for believers. Those who endure to the end, those who hold to the testimony, those who conquer the, through the blood of the Lamb, those who've clothed their, themselves in white robes, those who are sealed on their foreheads. Also, do we find any hint that Christians will be spared physical tribulation? Do we find any hint in the text that this is a seven-year time period? Okay. So I want to be fair and show you both views. Um, I don't hold to the dispensational view, but a lot of people do. And um, I just want you to be aware of that. So, any other questions before we go forward on that? All right. Let's go back to chapter 8. The prayers of the saints are going up. When the angel throws this incense, this golden censer, Verse 3, another angel came and stood at the altar with the golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the, with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. And the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth, and there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Now, You've got an imagery here of angels, censers, incense, temple. What does this look like? It's taken from the Old Testament tabernacle and, temp and temple. It's that imagery that you see in the Old Testament of worship. So the prayers of the saints are going up before God. Let me show you some imagery of the basic temple tabernacle structure in the Old Testament. What was the temple? What was the tabernacle? Same thing. The only difference between the temple and the tabernacle was what? The tabernacle was a portable tent that was carried around in the wilderness, but it was where God dwelled. The only difference is the temple was the permanent, where they actually Solomon actually built it on the temple mount, but it was actually the same type of structure, just the temple is a lot bigger to scale. But one of the things you had in the tabernacle and in the temple both was the very center of it called the Holy of Holies. Now, so think about, I'll draw you a picture. The tabernacle is easier to draw than the temple. <laughs> but it's the same concept. So you had a big, well, I'm getting better. You had a big tent. And you had an entrance to the tent where you had to wash before you got into the tent. Um, and then you had an inner tent inside the tent. And then even inside that you had um, a 10 by 10 by 10 perfect cube holy of holies. This was the very center of the tabernacle. It was called the holy of holies. In the holy of holies you had the Ark of the Covenant. You had Aaron's staff. Um, you had God's... This was where God dwelt with um, His people in the, in the fire and in the, in the um, cloud. One day a year, you guys remember what day that was? Yom Kippur, which was just a few weeks ago, Day of Atonement. 
the high priest, so Aaron or whoever it was, only one guy. So your average Israelite couldn't just waltz into the Holy of Holies and say, hey, God, I'm here to sacrifice. He'd be killed. The priest himself had to go through some serious ceremonial washing to get himself ready to purify himself. He'd go in there on one day of the year. He had to go through the veil to enter. Right outside the veil was called the holy place. So here's the holy place before you actually got to the Holy of Holies. And in the holy place, before you got there, there was the altar of incense. So before you went to the Holy of Holies, you had the altar of incense right there in the holy place. So every morning and every evening, the prince, not the prince, the priest would take burning coals off the altar and pour them onto the altar of incense. And then a cloud would go up with this smell representing worship and fragrant offering to the Lord. You can go back to Exodus chapter 30 and see that. You can go back to Luke chapter 1 when Zechariah was ministering in the temple. What was he doing before the angel showed up to him? Offering incense on the altar. So in the Bible, the idea of a throne, an altar of incense, and prayer are all wrapped up in this idea that the prayers of God's people are acceptable and pleasing to Him. They go up and they're... So, I mean, we don't really use incense today unless you're like a cool guy or unless you're like Andrew and his office smells like pumpkin spice incense. I don't like scents. I don't like smells. I, don't, I really, I'm, I'm bothered by smells. So, like, if somebody's wearing really strong perfume or you go into a place they're burning incense, it, it kind of bothers me. But back then, incense was what? It was to keep your house. They didn't have, like, Febreze and stuff. So they'd burn incense. But ultimately, the symbol of incense is this is a beautiful, powerful smell going up to God that's pleasing to Him. Now, in Revelation, what is symbolic of this beautiful smell going up to God? The prayers of the saints. They're acceptable to God. But here's the question. What exactly are these prayers? Are they generic prayers like, Lord, bless me, Lord, keep me, Lord, help me? Or are they very specific? They're very specific. So let's keep reading. Let's look at verse 6. I'll actually go back to chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. Chapter 6, verses 9 and 10, you see what the prayers were. We've already seen this, the prayers of the saints. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for their witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice. So here's the content of their prayers. O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will what? Judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth. So what are these prayers that are going up to God? How long until you judge? Now think about the Exodus for a moment. What happened before God poured out the ten plagues on the Egyptians? Remember, God heard. 
God knew. God saw. God observed. God comes to Moses, I have heard the cry of affliction. I've heard your prayers. Your prayers have gone up. Your prayers have been effective. Your prayers have reached me. I hear your prayers of agony. I hear your prayers of suffering. I hear your prayers of uh, of being in slavery. I've heard your prayers, and now I'm going to act. And how does God act when He's going to act in Exodus? Judgment. Ten plagues. He sins on the Egyptians. So... In some mysterious way, I don't know how it all works out, our prayers actually affect God's timing and pouring out His judgment. Now, do we change God's mind when we pray? If we pray and say, God, how long? Do it today. Is God bound to do it today? If we all pray to God and say, God, you've got to bring judgment today, is God obligated to do that? Okay. So the question that I often get for those of us that hold to a high view of God's sovereignty, why pray? If God's got it all figured out and God's going to judge and God's on His timetable and God is sovereign and He's meticulously sovereign over all things, then why pray? You're not changing His mind. You're not getting Him to do anything. He's already going to do it. If God can't be moved by us, why are we doing it? Let me give you just three biblical answers, and that should be enough. God commands us to pray, period. We may not know all the intricate details of how our prayers interact with God, but all throughout the Scriptures, we're told to what? Pray. Jesus Himself prayed. Now think about that. Jesus was God in the flesh, and He prayed. But here's the most important thing that we can think about. God ordains the means to accomplish His ends. Have you ever thought that your prayers are the means that God uses to bring about His ends? Well, if God's going to do it, you shouldn't pray. Have you ever thought the way God's going to do it is through your prayers? Well, if God's going to save them, God's going to save them. shouldn't witness. Have you ever thought God's going to save them through your witness? Well, God's going to have people serve in the church anyway, so I'm not going to use my spiritual gift to serve. Isn't God going to serve Aren't you going to serve the church through your spiritual gifts? Nowhere in the Bible is God's sovereignty an excuse for laziness or inactivity or lack of prayer. Now, these types of prayers are foreign to us. What are they praying? God, I want you to judge. God, I want you to mete out judgment. That sounds foreign to us. When's the last time you prayed that? God, I want you to pour out your wrath on the unbelieving world. Yeah, I called it the sons of Ze- yeah, the sons of Zebedee. Yeah, James and John. Well, here's the thing about it, guys. Those that are praying are in heaven. In heaven, your perspective's different. I think you can pray those prayers in heaven, and they're not wrong. Down here they may be a little bit too extreme to be praying that way, but somehow they want vindication. Now, how much time do we have left here? we got, we got some time. Let's explore the trumpet judgments because now the, 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 the seventh seal is the angel pouring out the censer on the earth. There's thunders, there's lightning, there's an earthquake. Now, let's go to verse 6 through 13. 
the first four trumpet judgments. So now we're moving into a different set of judgments. So we've seen the seven sealed judgments, the first set of judgments, chapter 6, chapter 7 is the interlude, the beginning of chapter 8 is the seventh seal. Now we get into the second set of seven, I know it's very confusing, the trumpet judgments. So let's read this. And as you read this, think Exodus. Can we keep telling you? Think Exodus. So here we go. Now the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to blow them. The first angel blew his trumpet, and there followed hail and fire mixed with blood, and these were thrown upon the earth. And a third of the earth was burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all the grass was burned up. All the green grass was burned up. The second angel blew his trumpet, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood. A third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. The third angel blew his trumpet, and a great star fell from heaven, blazing like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers and of the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters became Wormwood, and many people died from the water because it had been made bitter. The fourth angel blew his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of their light may, might be darkened, and a third of the day might be kept from shining, and likewise a third of the night. When I looked and heard an eagle crying with a loud voice, it flew directly over heaven. Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth at the blast of the other trumpets, and the three angels are about to blow. This is where understanding the plagues in Exodus are very helpful. Now, let's ask the question. A third of the earth is destroyed, not the whole earth. What is the purpose of these trumpets? What was the purpose of the plagues for Pharaoh, for Egypt? They're warning signs. They are to warn people of the full wrath of God so that they will what? Repent and trust in Christ. Since... This is only one-third of the population and not total annihilation. I see, see that as there's still time to repent. Do you understand this? Even with the... Think about the most worldwide event of God's judgment in the Bible in the Old Testament that wiped out everybody except one family. What was it? Did God give the people time to repent? 120 years when Noah was building the ark. Did God give people time to repent in Sodom and Gomorrah before he rained down fire? Very rarely. When Jonah went into Nineveh, what did he say? 40 days and you're toast. Very rarely in the Bible does God execute immediate judgment without giving people time to repent repent so here's the warning for us especially non-christians if you hear the word of the lord if you are without jesus it's not the end yet but it might be so what does that mean repent and flee the wrath to come because you may not be guaranteed tomorrow so god is giving them an opportunity to repent so Here's the first trumpet, verses 6 and 7. 
Um, some see this somewhat as an electrical storm or the blood is the color of the hail. Or it could be symbolic of the fire of God's judgment. Um, these seven trumpet judgments are very similar to what we see in the ten plagues. So this, this first trumpet, actually, if you go back and read Exodus, it mirrors the seventh of the ten plagues. In Exodus 9, 13-35, and this affects one-third of the land, and it's also similar to the third seal of famine from the black rider on the horse. This is a famine type thing, because what does it happen? A third of the earth was burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up, and the green grass was burned up. Now, why trees and grass? What do trees produce? Fruit, oxygen, figs, fruit. What does grass do? Those of you that have cattle, you need grass. So grass and trees being burned up means your, your whole agricultural economic life is, there's, there's going to be a major famine because cows can't eat and trees don't produce crops. And so it's, it's this whole idea of famine. And that was very similar to the seventh of the ten plagues affected the land, okay, the land. Second trumpet, verses 8 and 9. Um, this is a, a great mountain burning with fire. Looks like a volcano, doesn't it? Now, back in AD 79, Mount Vesuvius erupted. Um, but oftentimes in the Old Testament, mountains, the symbol of a mountain, was a symbol for a great pagan nation. When God would talk in the Old Testament about a pagan nation, not Israel, He'd often talk about it being a mountain, a great mountain, oftentimes Babylon. So like in Jeremiah 51, 24-26, I will repay Babylon and all the inhabitants of Chaldea before your very eyes for all the evil that they have done in Zion, declares the Lord. Behold, I'm coming against you, O destroying mountain, declares the Lord which destroys the whole earth. I will stretch out my hand against you and roll you down from your crags and make you a burnt mountain. No stone shall be taken from you for a corner and no stone for a foundation, but you shall be a perpetual waste, declares the Lord. Babylon is seen here as a great mountain that's thrown down. So we have these mountains. This mirrors the first plague in Egypt, Exodus 7, 20-21, and it affects what? The sea. So the first trumpet affected land. The second trumpet affects the sea. The sea becomes like what? Blood. The Nile River becomes like blood. We'll talk a little bit about that this Sunday. Luke 21, 25-27. There will be signs in sun, moon, and stars, and on the earth distress of nations and perplexity because of the roaring of the seas and the waves, people fainting with fear and with foreboding for what is coming on the world, for the powers of the heavens will be shaken, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in the cloud with great power and with great glory. Interestingly, when Matthew talks about like cataclysmic things at the end, he talks about the sun, moon, stars, mountains, earthquakes. Luke introduces what there? The roaring of the sea and the waves. So this is something related to 
the, the sea. Now there's a third trumpet. This is an interesting one. You've got this great star falling from heaven like a torch. What is this great star? Is it a meteorite? Could be. Is it symbolic? I don't know. <laughs> What's the effect, though? This affects... Okay, so trumpet number one affects land. Trumpet number two affects salt water. See, trumpet number three affects what? Fresh water. And it becomes like wormwood. Now, do you remember what happened in the wilderness with Moses when they came to the water of Marah? It's a reverse of what happened with the Israelites in the wilderness at Marah when they complained that the water was bitter. Remember they got there, this water's bitter. And what did Moses do? He hit the rock and then bountiful water came out that was good drinking water. This is a reverse of that. Now, wormwood. The Old Testament references wormwood in Proverbs chapter 5, Lamentations chapter 3, and Jeremiah chapter 9. But look in your Bible. Is Wormwood capitalized? The name of the star is... Does anybody else have something different than Wormwood? Does anybody have the King James Version? Does it all say Wormwood? All your translations? Does anybody have King James? Look it up. It says Wormwood too? Okay. It's in caps. Okay. So almost all translations has, is, is capitalized Wormwood. So the star's name, this is interesting. The star's given a name. The name is Wormwood. Now, let me just give you what I think this is. I think this could be a symbolic way of talking about how Satan was the fallen star that... God kicked out of heaven, um, a symbolism of that. So Isaiah 14, 12 through 14, the king of Babylon says this, How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. King James has Lucifer in there. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. I believe that's talking about Satan. Satan is the star that fell. And so... I'm not really sure what Wormwood's all about, but that's the star's name. And it causes the water to become bitter. So you got trumpet one, land, affected a third of the land. Trumpet two, a third of the sea. Trumpet three, a third of the fresh waters. Okay. Trumpet four... Heavenly bodies, stars, moon, sun. This is very similar to the sixth seal back in chapter 6, verses 12 to 13. 
So is this another occurrence of the sun, moon, and stars going dark? Or is it just another way to talk about the event? So my question is, does the sun, does the sun go dark back in chapter 6, and does it go dark again? It's like there are two darknesses. Or is it the same thing being told in more of a cyclical way? This mirrors the ninth plague in Exodus, which is darkness right before the Passover. By the way, remember right before Jesus died? There was darkness over the land. So before Jesus, the Passover lamb, was crucified, there was darkness over the land for three hours. Before the Passover lambs were killed in Egypt, there was darkness over the land. And Moses says it was a darkness that could be felt. Now, it's interesting to note, the sun, moon, and stars were created on the fourth day in Genesis 1. And now on the fourth day, or the fourth trumpet, there is a symbolic decreation of the heavens to show that God's cosmic judgment has begun. Cosmic judgment. Okay, so think about the, the, think about the four types of judgment here. Lands affected, a third. Seas affected, a third. Fresh waters affected, a third. Sun, moon, and stars are affected. And it's all about a trumpet blowing. Now, I'm going to skip over those passages of Scripture. You can look at those. But I want to show you, so Amos 5.18, you can look at. Joel 2.1 and 2, you can look at. Mark 13.24-27, you can look at. But for the sake of time, because I, I want to try to finish tonight if we can, there's an introduction of woes at the very end of verse 13. So there's a break. you got four judgments, but then there's a break again. Then I looked and heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead, Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth at the blast of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. Some translations have it a vulture. I think the most, the, probably the best is to have it an eagle. An eagle was a symbol of God's judgment as a bird of prey ready to pounce on the dead. There's a bunch of different passages of Scripture that talk about the eagle being um, God's act of judgment. This is the first of three woes we are to see in the book of Revelation. Now, he says, whoa, whoa, whoa. What's a woe? Whoa, 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 you broke? Gently down to sweet? Sounds like Elmer Fudd. Whoa, 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 you broke? What's a woe? A woe, woe is me. Yeah. A woe is an announcement of a curse or a catastrophic event or disaster that's very similar to what the Old Testament prophets pronounced in their messages upon Israel's idolatry. God will bring judgment. Woe to you three times. If something's repeated three times, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Emphasis, right? Underline, highlight, asterisks, caps. That's the ancient Hebrew way of drawing attention. Woe, woe, woe. It's very, very important. There is about to come major judgment on who? Underline this in your Bible. It's a very interesting um, concept. Those who dwell on the earth. That's a key word that's going to show up a lot in Revelation. It's very symbolic. Earth dwellers. Literally earth dwellers. This is a phrase we will see repeated through the Revelation, and it symbolizes non-Christians 
who have made this world their permanent home instead of heaven and they stand opposed to Christ and His gospel. Those who dwell on the earth, those who live on the earth, those who've made the earth their home, those who are in love with this world, those who have embraced this world system, those that have not submitted to Jesus but are planted both feet on this earth, judgment is coming to them. Now, we'll get to chapter 9 next week, but the first four judgments are all inflicted on the physical world and nature. Okay, Vegetation, earth, sea, Freshwater, sun, moon, stars. Next week, it gets very, very personal. God's going to send out demonic forces to inflict people mentally and spiritually through demonic oppression that's going to impact people in their actual bodies. So, three observations. Regardless of how difficult it is to interpret these images as either literal or symbolic or whatever, the bigger issue is that these judgments originate with God as coming out of heaven as His answers to the prayers of His people. We could sit here all day and figure out what these judgments mean. The point is they're coming from God to judge the earth. Secondly, these judgments expose the true nature of lost people. They are those who dwell on the earth. They're not neutral. They are those who've made this earth their home. Remember what Jesus says in John 3? People loved the darkness rather than the light. They've loved this world. They're infatuated with this world. They're earth dwellers. And number three... These judgments anticipate the final deliverance of God's people. So these are not a cause of dread for Christians. Just like the plagues in Exodus were a precursor to deliverance, these judgments are a precursor to our deliverance in heaven. Israel was saved in Goshen. The, Israelite, uh, the Egyptians did not repent. God delivered them through the Red Sea. Now, this may not look like... You think about these judgments... This may not look like love. This sounds kind of harsh for God to do this. But it's a great act of love by God for His distinct people. God shows His love for us in the judgment of the wicked. This may be the most offensive aspect of the gospel, but the book of Revelation will never allow us to get away from it. One thing the book of Revelation will not let you do is put somebody in a category of neutral. You're either lost or saved. You're either an earth dweller or you're heaven bound. You're either an enemy of God or you're a friend of God. There's no, there's no right in the fence. And God's going to pour out judgment. And so I will tell you this. We went through this study of Revelation in a small group with, with elders about four or five years ago. I went through this study with our men on our Monday morning Bible study. This is my third time to teach it. And one thing that the book of Revelation will do as we start getting into this part, it will sober you. It will make you start thinking about heaven and hell and reality of judgment. I think it's meant to do that. So I'm just warning you ahead of time. 
These aren't going to be happy little things that you're walking away like, oh, this is like Philippians. You know, the joy of the Lord is my, you know, we're going to walk away with a heaviness because God is pouring out judgment on earth dwellers. But there's hope for us because we have made our home in heaven through Jesus Christ. Okay? So, 802. I'm going to pray. If you have questions, you can come up afterwards, and I hopefully I'll answer them. But some of you have to go get your kids. So let me pray. Father, thank you for this time tonight. Um, I pray that uh, we may not understand, but anything that, that I said tonight, but Lord, is one thing that I do want us to understand is, is your, your grace, your protection, and just the reality of that we do not want to make our home on this earth. We do not want to be those who are earth dwellers. We want to be those who have you as our Savior, you as our Lord, and we look forward to our home in heaven. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.